Andy Media. I think Trump's success comes from really a, a pretty uh, clever and incisive reading of the crisis of uh, both main parties in the United States, but the far deeper crisis of the Republican Party. Uh, it's a party whose membership and uh, primary uh, election voters have become increasingly disgruntled with the leadership, the direction it's taken, uh, and also um, have been willing, in this case, to buck that leadership. So that leadership, which uh, controls its electorate for election cycle after election cycle, has, has rebelled. Um, similar to the Tea Party rebellion, but I think Trump was much more clever than the, than the people who ended up leading the Tea Party rebellion, because those people took... Uh, a rebellion against the, the Republican political establishment in a particularly right-wing, ultra-free market, ultra-racist kind of direction, whereas Trump read much more carefully that actually the Republican electorate isn't really into Tea Party ideology, but into a, a kind of more basic and surprisingly moderate program, apart from the issues around border control and terrorism. Yes, you've drawn attention to the fact that Trump has advocated uh, populist policies, for instance, uh, protectionism, trade tariffs. He's talked about bringing jobs back to the industrialised Midwest and so on. Much of the left's focus, of course, has been on his virulent racism, his call for a ban on Muslim migration and constructing a wall on the Mexican border. Why do you think, I guess a, a twofold question, why do you think the left has ignored his populist agenda and, and why has that uh, populist agenda gained such traction with uh, the American electorate? I think the left has ignored it because it, there's, a, there's a great deal of cognitive dissonance. For a long time now, official politics in the United States has polarised uh, left and right. I mean, there's very good uh, data about the positions of uh, uh, party activists, um, politicos, um, M well, their version of MPs, con congressmen and women. Um, all those positions have tended to polarise the two parties out. The two parties don't have an overlap in the centre anymore in terms of what's going on in the parties. However, in the general population, actually there hasn't been a, a big ideological shift. Um, and so for the left, which has polarised and presumed that all well, the best people must be Democrat voters, even if they've got mistaken ideas that the Democrats can really deliver and so on, can't imagine that someone on the right could do something other than just be more right than the last one. Um, so we see every election, the crazy hysteria from Democrat supporters about how, you know, for God's sake, Mitt Romney was a fascist. I mean, there were literally articles about that last time around, um, but only marginal articles. This time, the only way they could respond was to see, see Trump as more extreme. And because Trump used some very hot-button issues that were very controversial to draw attention to himself, because he is a seasoned media performer uh, and knows how to draw attention to himself, something he's been doing as a businessman as well, those things stuck, and the left would only look at them. It's almost like, like you could almost get people to watch Trump's speeches, and they would ignore all but the two or three minutes that was offensive to them. Um, and I think that's, that's really, there was too much cognitive dissonance for the left to accept that actually something weird was going on the right, something unusual, not the usual pattern. Um, sorry, what was the second question you asked me? Just why that populist agenda has gained so much traction. Yeah. So, so I, I, think Trump, I think Trump has many of the characteristics of classical populists, but he's adapted for the modern era where the particular um, populism that works now is a populism against the political establishment and what's known as the political class. As, as the political class uh, and its 
demonstrated by the fact that they're more polarised and, and at the extremes, even though the population isn't, the population experiences the political classes more and more detached and disconnected from, from, from their own concerns. And Trump, I think, saw that there was this great middle that could be appealed to, but the only way you could do that realistically was to take over one of the parties. And the only party that was right for takeover, the one in the greatest crisis with the most broken down structures was, was, the, was the Republican Party. So I think he's leveraged his hostile takeover of the Republican Party, reading that the Republican electorate is not as crazy right-wing as its leaders, and then has taken that to try to, to, try to make a pitch in the, in the general election to a wider group of voters who are absolutely pissed off with the whole political establishment. There are echoes of the Brexit debate here in that many sections of the left have written off the white working class. Of course, Clinton herself described Trump's support base as deplorables. But uh, we've seen also the left uh, describe his supporters as white trash, as uh, irredeemably racist, as uh, irretrievably uh, bigoted. It seems to me there's a real problem with that because, uh, I mean, if we really believe that a vast section of the white working class is irretrievably racist and reactionary, then there's little hope for progressive social change. I mean, talk to that element. And I suppose, how much does the, does the question of identity politics come into that? I mean, we know American politics is very, very much cleaved along racial, ethnic, uh, g- gender lines. How much of this is is kind of uh, shaped by that that prism of identity politics? I think a great deal, but I think the ultimate identity politics that are going on is the partisan identity between Democrats and Republicans. And one of the effects of the end of um, the you know, segregated South was that there was a big realignment of American politics, whereby uh, certain identity groups tended to go much more to the Democrats, um, in- including certain issue groups, and the Republicans attracted other ones. So you get this kind of sorting of the population. And so the left, because it sees, you know, minorities, pro-abortionists and so on, um, you know, as being around the Democrats, presumes that whoever's around the other party must be irredeemably reactionary because they're not minorities. And, uh, you know, the anti-abortionists are far more sorted into the Republican base and so on and so forth. So um, so I, I think... I think actually people see this stuff through the prism of politics and decide certain identities are better than others. When you look at the data, I mean, the same data that produces claims that Trump's supporters are 60% racist or whatever, you'll find that actually Clinton's supporters by those measures are 25% racist. So the, the sorting is not as clear-cut as that. But I, I do think it's, it's the politics that drives how people perceive what is the correct side to be on. Um, certainly, identity politics is the dominant form of kind of soft left politics in the in the United States. You can see it with all the demands of the student occupations in the last couple of years and so on. And in a weird way, Trump actually breaks with that. Um, I think he's I mean, people have said how outrageous his claims are that the inner cities are deprived and there's social problems and that he's going to fix it. Um, and actually the left is turning around and saying, after all these years saying the problem in the inner city, black people are oppressed and so on, they're now saying, actually, no, it's actually pretty good. How dare you insult them by saying things are so bad there? So this is kind of, he's been able to flip that and break past a lot of that culture war identity politics uh, sort of stuff that was around. And again, the cognitive dissonance, the left doesn't know how to handle it because it no longer looks for universal kind of solutions. It has accepted the identity politics framework, even the most radical uh, left has decided 
in, in some ways to give into that identity politics direction. Speaking of the radical left, we know there was a lot of support among young people in particular for Bernie Sanders. Over three million people donated to his campaign. Many hundreds of thousands turned out to his rallies. Yet his campaign was never a social movement in any meaningful sense of that term. Looking back, how do you assess the Sanders campaign? Was it a kind of chimera, a diversion for the left, or could it have led to something more substantial to even a real movement uh, of the working class? Look, I, I, I think under some if, if I think that if Sanders had played his cards right from the beginning and more aggressively attacked Clinton, there may have been a similar upset in the Democrat Party to the Republican Party. One of the things that's been hidden by the success of Trump and the severe crisis of the Republicans is the mounting problems that Democrats have in their leadership has in controlling their own electorate and their own primary voters. And, and so even though, um, even though there's a lot of disappointment about the Sanders campaign, it, for a kindly old socialist from Vermont to do that well against one of the most powerful, well-connected Democrat figures ever says something about how the Democratic Party had a bit of a near-death experience. I mean, the, the WikiLeaks stuff that's coming about, about how many dirty tricks they had to play and so on and so forth, kind of tells you that actually that party's in trouble as well. It can't control its own electorate that well either, either and more problems are going uh, to mount. What I think it doesn't represent is a radicalisation in the population of America any more than the Trump uh, phenomenon represents one on the right. I think... Uh, you know, as I said, inside the parties are people who are more extreme politically than people in the general population. And there were a lot of people in Democrats who are sick of the direction it's gone for the last 20 or 30 years, more to the right, more neoliberal, more free trade. And there was always a space there that if someone presented the right message uh, at the right time, um, they could actually, they could actually uh, win a lot of votes as well inside the party. The figures vary, of course, depending on which poll one looks at, but it's been reported in various sources that Trump and Clinton are the two most unpopular presidential candidates in American history. At one stage recording, for instance, the highest ever unfavorability rating in the history of ABC News, Washington Post polls. Uh, What does that say about uh, something you've written about extensively, the hollowing out of the social base of uh, mainstream political parties? I should imagine that you think that hollowing out, that disillusionment with mainstream politics, revulsion with mainstream politics will continue in American society regardless of who wins tomorrow. Yes, uh, absolutely. I think think that's a problem for both parties. I think for all the fear and terror in the left about a Trump victory, Trump actually has no serious social base in the old sense that the that the um, Democrats and, and Republicans used to have at least up to the 1960s, where they there were mass organisations in society from the Rotary Clubs to Masons to trade unions that organised people who could then be, you know, uh, essentially patronage could be offered to these various organisations and their members by political operatives uh, in, in, in a way that right now, as those bases have hollowed out, you have much more very narrow special interest groups lobbyists and donors who try to control the parties, but it's much more detached from the general um, population. And I think that explains particularly the dislike of Clinton, including on the left. Like there's been a lot more anti-Clinton than there was anti-Obama or, um, you know, even anti-John Kerry some years ago on the left, because I think there's a sense that they people recognise there is something gone wrong with the people who lead the political parties. I think Trump's unpopularity is because he has decided to run this by being a very polarising figure. Um, and I think 
that explains why he's been unpopular. But in the end, let's face it, the electoral map, you know, give or take a little bit, is not going to be that different from the last few elections. It's not like Trump is going to sweep huge numbers of states that Republicans haven't had for, you know, 50 years or that Clinton's going to, you know, sweep sweeps, unless something really unexpected happens, sweep states that the Democrats haven't held for a very long time. Um, that electoral map hasn't really changed that much. Um, and I think people are now stuck with two awful choices and they're going to choose one of them or stay at home. Personally, I think probably this is the kind of election I would stay at home for in the United States. It's really hard to choose uh, either one of them. Um, I think the breakdown of the political system will take slightly different forms depending on who wins. Um, uh, but I think that breakdown will continue. Just uh, finally on that uh, last point, uh, will it be business as usual, Washington consensus, do you think, regardless uh, of, of who wins uh, tomorrow? No, I, I, th- I think um, if, if I'm going to make any sort of wild projections, I think Trump, because he's a guy who wants to close the deal, um, I think he's likely to end up being attempting to do a true bipartisan cross-party deal-making uh, kind of presidency. I think that he's going to be stuck doing that because there'll be people on the extremes of both the parties who want nothing to do with him. But I think um, there are also probably Congress people who might see the possibility of actually winning some legislative change when things have been so so um, gridlocked for so long. And I think Trump will try to play, the, play to that. I think he set things up so he's, he can actually be a quite a centrist president, um, despite some of the um, despite some of the wild early statements that he used to get attention and to convince Republican voters he was on their side. On the other hand, Clinton, I think, will be coming to this so weak and so tied to the identity politics stuff she's been using, the culture war stuff she's been using during the election. She'll her weakness will mean that she will start running culture wars to try to maintain her presidency and maintain her authority, and I think. Unfortunately, she's almost turned the issue of um, what to do about ISIS in Syria into a culture war. And I could imagine her ending up with uh, a nasty confrontation with Russia over something that really, really shouldn't happen and that things can get really out of control. And I can imagine the United States being humiliated because of an adventure, perhaps another Suez Canal, if people remember all the way back to 1956, where you know, a series of governments were humiliated because they tried to take the Suez Canal, European governments, and were defeated by by NASA and uh, the Egyptian military. So um, I I think you could get one of those crazy adventures that leads to absolute collapse uh, within the the higher echelons of the political system. So both ways, I think more breakdown to come, more weirdness to come, and more realignment to come.